We are in Acts 25 this morning. Home stretch. If things play out the way they played out first service, we'll get through Acts 26 today. And then, if you need a Bible, Bud has Bibles, wave at him, get his attention. Acts 27 next week, two messages in Acts 28, and I think that they'll be interrupted by a week. I think that we'll do something a little different while the ladies are away at their retreat, which is just a couple weeks away now. And then, before you know it, it's November, and even before we get to Thanksgiving, we'll be on to Ephesians, unless the Lord turns us around. Acts 25 this morning. I was at a conference in August. It's the conference up at Calvary Johnson County in Olathe that used to be called the PALS Conference, Pastors and Leaders, PALS. Um, I guess it was Pastors and Leaders and Servants, but regardless, now it's just a gathering of believers. And it was wonderful. And as soon as Pastor Jared gets the dates uh, figured out for next year. I'm going to start letting you know about it because it was truly special and, and I'm hoping a lot of us can be a part of it next year. But in the middle of the conference and, and, and everything that was going on there, I ended up in a conversation with someone that was maybe a little less than wonderful or differently wonderful. Um, the two of us were standing in a group and bunch of people, some I knew, some I didn't know, and, you know, as, as happens in conferences like this, somebody walks by, oh, I got to talk to you, and somebody else walks by, oh, I haven't seen you, and, and before you know it, it's just me and this other guy standing there, and we didn't know each other. I mean, you know how that happens. So I said, hey, I'm Patrick, and he said, yeah, I know, because I had taught earlier that morning, I guess. And I said, okay, uh, I, guess, I, guess that's, I guess that's true. So, hey, and I'm looking at his name tag, Fred. How are you, Fred? Are, are you part of Calvary Johnson County here? No. Okay. Great to see all of these churches coming together, including whichever one you're from. So, and I'm still trying, right? So, tell me your story, Fred. How did you end up being a Jesus guy? I don't think Christians should talk about themselves. I think we should talk about God. And we stood and stared at each other for a moment, and then he turned and walked away. I, I wish I'd been quicker on the draw. Sometimes, you know, you think of the right thing to say much, much later. Because it wasn't until he walked away that I thought, hang on, I, I don't think you have that exactly right. And I've been thinking about it for two months, and I'm really sure he didn't have that exactly right. One of, one of the things that's always been a point of emphasis in Calvary is humility, which, which Nothing wrong. It's obviously a quality that the Bible commends to us, something that Jesus exemplifies for us. God humbling himself, casting off the prerogatives of divinity, becoming man, coming to earth. Why? To serve, to wash feet, to die in our place. So we're called to humility, no question about that. And Calvary especially, that's always been deep DNA for us, this constant exhortation to humility. And that goes back to the earliest days of our, of our tribe. When young people, and you saw the Jesus Revolution, or, or some of you were there for the Jesus Revolution, but you know the story about young people, hippies getting saved during the Jesus movement in the late 60s and early 70s. And, the thing we don't talk about as much, and the thing that didn't make it into the movie, is who discipled those hippies? 
Greg and Mike and others that Pastor Chuck and Lonnie were leading to the Lord, many of them were discipled by a man named Romain. Romain was his last name. I don't think anybody knows his first name. He's always referred to as Romain. Romain had been a marine drill instructor, and it showed. You talk to the men who grew up in ministry under his tutelage, young men who were gifted and anointed and who knew they were gifted and anointed, Romain took as his ministry to keep them humble. I remember one pastor telling a story about how he had gone out to plant a church, and after several months, he only had 10 people coming to the Bible study. And, you know, this is during the season where the expectation was, you know, throw a dove on the wall and people will, will flock to you. And so he's lamenting to Pastor Romain, I only have 10 people at my Bible study. And he said, 10 people? Who are these 10 people? I want to meet them. I want to tell them that they shouldn't listen to you. Who are you? Ten people? I, don't, I, can't, I can't name ten people who would listen to you. You don't deserve ten people. You don't deserve one person. Ten people. You should be on your knees thanking God that you have ten people, that they're so deceived that they think that you're actually a teacher. This, this, this is how Romaine loved people, by exhorting them to stay humble. And again, humility, nothing but biblical. At the same time, strength overplayed, we say so often, strength overplayed is a weakness. And strange as it sounds, even a biblical virtue like humility can be overemphasized, can be taken to mean things that Jesus never intended. And I wonder if that wasn't my friend Fred up in Olathe. Was he doing his best to apply what someone had taught him or tried to teach him about humility? You know, we've all heard it said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's not beating yourself up and saying, I'm wretched and no good and I'm worthless. No, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less and thinking of Jesus and others more. That's biblical. Less of you, more, less of me, more of you, God. I got to die to self. I got to crucify my pride and live for you. That, that, that's right on. But it doesn't mean that we cease to exist. God has left us in this world, which means he's left us in the world for a reason. And we know what the reason is. The chief reason we're in the world is what? To be witnesses, Acts 1.8. To tell the world what we've seen Jesus do, the stories we have, firsthand accounts of his love and faithfulness. And the, the story we're best able to tell is our story. The story of Jesus' love and faithfulness in our lives, specifically, uniquely, individually. A big reason why we're still here and not home with God in heaven is there are people in the world who need to hear that story, our story. Do they also need to see that story lived out? Of course they do. Talk is cheap. But they also need to hear about it, or they might not understand what it is that they're seeing. We need to give people a reason for the hope they see in us. One of the reasons we're here is to share our Jesus stories. How am I sure, A, Jesus said so, two, if it wasn't true, someone forgot to tell Paul. As we turn back to Acts 25, Paul's about to tell his Jesus story for the third time in the book of Acts. Acts 25, we left off in the middle of the chapter. 
if you're joining us in progress. Paul's been in custody in the, in the governor's palace up in Caesarea for two years. 60 AD, Felix, the governor who had been holding him, was relieved of duty. He was recalled back to Rome. He was replaced by a guy named Festus. At which point we see the whole chain of events that brought Paul to Caesarea repeat themselves. Jewish leadership bringing uh, accusations, secretly plotting assassination, a Roman governor keeping Paul safe on the one hand, not letting him get killed, but not letting him go either because he's afraid of what the Sadducees and the Pharisees will do if he just lets Paul go. At which point Paul says, enough is enough, I'm appealing to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen but which also puts Festus in a bit of a bind. Paul appealed to Caesar. He's got to send him to Rome. He had no choice. Legally, the matter was out of his hands at that point. But what was he going to tell Nero Paul was appealing? He's appealing to Caesar, but what were the charges? The reality is there weren't any, nothing legitimate. Paul was, for all intents and purposes, a political prisoner. But you can't very well put that in an official document. But conveniently, while Festus is trying to suss all of that out, King Agrippa and his sister-slash-lover, Bernice, come to visit. I know, ick. Festus is the new guy in town. They come to pay respects. They also come because Agrippa and Festus have overlapping responsibilities. Festus is the governor of Judea. Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, if we want to be formal, was a Herod and was regarded by Rome as an expert in Jewish affairs. So they'd given him charge over all things having to do with the temple in Jerusalem, in Judea. So, so they had overlapping interests, overlapping responsibilities. But for Festus, Festus is saying, well, this is perfect. I've got an expert on Jewish affairs who's also unquestionably loyal to the Roman Empire coming to visit me. He can tell me how to handle this. So chapter 25, Festus lays out the whole story for Agrippa. Verse 22, Agrippa says, I want to hear Paul myself. I want to hear his firsthand account. And Festus says, okay, how about tomorrow? Does tomorrow work for you? Verse 23, picking it up. The next day, when it was tomorrow, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city and everyone who mattered, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And imagine the contrast. You've got Agrippa and Bernice in royal robes. You've got Festus in his imperial garb. You've got the military commanders in their full uniforms, the prominent men dressed to impress, and then there's Paul, who Scripture tells us on his best day was unimpressive. And Festus says, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man, about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. Okay, it wasn't a decision, Festus. You didn't have a choice, but, but tell the story how you want to. And, and notice he's, he's also admitting the contradiction there. He, on the one hand, he's acknowledging that Paul's not guilty of anything, not, nothing of substance, but he won't release him either. He's, he's, he's sort of east of rock and west of hard place there. I've got nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him, verse 26. Therefore, I've brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, this, this hearing, it wasn't a trial, it was just more of a, of a conversation, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. 
brought him out before you, verse 26, meaning, meaning all of you, Agrippa, but everybody else. Festus is hoping that somebody there can solve his Paul problem for him. Chapter 26, Agrippa says to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. The key word being permitted, he wasn't required to even be there. They couldn't compel him to say anything. He'd already appealed to Caesar, which was his absolute right. He could choose to not attend, and if he attended, he could choose to not testify. And if Paul had a lawyer, which he didn't, but if he did, the lawyer would have told Paul, don't testify. Don't show up for, for whatever you do. Don't open your mouth. Anything you say here can only hurt you. Except Paul knew opening his mouth was what he was there to do. Opening his mouth to speak of Jesus and his experience with Jesus was what he was in the world to do. Now, in this particular case, Paul knew more than that. He knew at the beginning of his ministry, God had told him that he was going to be his witness before the children of Israel, Gentiles, and kings. Hey, there's a king. I know why I'm here. But in a broader sense, it wouldn't have mattered. It didn't matter where Paul was. God had also told him at the beginning of his ministry, Acts 22, 15, wherever he was, he was there to be a witness of God's love and faithfulness. So Paul said, okay, if you're going to let me talk, I'm going to talk. Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. This is a good thing. Because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. He wants Agrippa to listen, and he's warning him, you're going to need to be a little patient because this isn't going to be what you're expecting. Agrippa is expecting Paul to defend himself because that's normally what someone in Paul's position would do. Paul's not going to. He's going to use this opportunity to share his testimony, to tell Agrippa his Jesus story, starting, verse 4, at the very beginning. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Go, find them, ask them. They knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify, they'd tell you that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Paul says this a lot, right? However observant you think you are, however strict your observance of the law, however diligent you believe yourself to be, I'm more so. Ask anyone. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The defining promise of Judaism, especially for the Pharisees, was the promise that God would send a Messiah to rescue and redeem. So Paul's point is, I'm being judged by what the Pharisees teach. I'm being judged for believing what they say is true, that when God promised to send a Savior, he meant it. To this promise, the promise of Messiah, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God tonight and day hope to attain. Israel has been literally watching, waiting, praying, hoping, anticipating this very thing for centuries now. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. How does that make sense? Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Does that disqualify Jesus from being Messiah somehow? If God is God, can't he do anything? If God is God of the Old Testament... 
Didn't he promise to do this very thing? Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. This is a messianic prophecy. Together with my dead body, Messiah speaking, they shall arise. Your dead shall live. Your dead shall be raised from the dead. Together with my dead body, they shall arise from the dead. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. You who have been buried in the ground. For your dew is like the dew of herbs. It's new, it's fresh. And the earth shall cast out the dead. What is blowing everybody's mind is is Paul's question. Now Paul knows his audience. He knows Agrippa is a nominal Jew at best. He's a Jew in name. And he knows that Agrippa is thinking, okay, just because God can raise somebody from the dead doesn't mean that he does raise somebody from the dead. And if God raises somebody from the dead, it doesn't have to be Jesus. And just because he raises Jesus from the dead doesn't mean he's the Messiah. And Paul says, yeah, that's what I used to think. Verse 9, Paul says kind of the same things we read in Acts 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Scholars debate, okay, does this mean that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, voting to put people to death? Or is he just saying, if I had been a member, that's how I would have voted? It doesn't matter. He had murder in his heart either way. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, Acts 9, we read of Paul breathing threats and murder. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I was persecuting them, better translation. That was, that was who I was. That's what I did. That's, that, that, that was an ongoing thing. And while thus occupied, while I was persecuting, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. It's the third time we've heard this story, for, first time, obviously, for Agrippa. But, but one thing I don't think that we've called out, notice what Paul is saying. It's not just a light, and it's not just a bright light, and that's not just a light brighter than the sun. It's a light from where? A light from heaven. What's he suggesting? The Jews wouldn't have missed the implication. He was suggesting that light was the Shekinah glory. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Go read the story of Jacob, Paul. If you wrestle with God, you'll lose. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. Literally, it says, stand and take a stand. I love that. Stand and take a stand, Paul, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I'll yet reveal to you. This won't be the last time we talk, Paul. I have a mission for you, and I'll fill in the details as we go. It won't make you the most popular kid on the playground, But it also won't get you killed. Verse 17, I'll deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. I'll protect you, God says, because I'm sending you to be a witness, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I'm sending you to be a witness, Paul, that the people who hear you and listen 
might have their eyes opened to the gospel. That's what, that's what Paul just summarized. Go tell people about me. Go tell people the story about you and me. And if you do, if they listen, they'll turn from darkness to light. They'll throw off the power of Satan. They'll be forgiven of sin. And they'll become heirs. They'll become children of God. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus purchased on the cross for all of us. Anyone who's willing to have our eyes opened, who's willing to believe, who's willing to call on the name of the Lord. We're let out of darkness into marvelous light. Sin and death and Satan have no claim on us anymore. We're eternally forgiven and we're eternally adopted into God's family. Therefore, Paul goes on, King Agrippa, Jesus said, this is what I was here to do. This is what I've been doing. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all of the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. What are the works befitting repentance? One word. Love. Love is, is the testimony that we belong to God. Fourth, fourth time, by the way, that, that uh, Paul is called Agrippa by his title. God told him that he'd be witness to kings. Now that he's before a king, he's going for it. He's emphasizing it. And he goes on, verse 21. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Four chapters ago, but remember it was two years earlier in Paul's time, chapter 22. Therefore, having obtained help from God, the help that God promised in verse 17, help that saved his life not once but twice in one day, to this day I stand two years later in a room full of people who have tried repeatedly to kill me, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he'd be the first to rise from the dead, and will proclaim light to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Those are the things that are making everyone mad, Paul says. But someone has to help me understand why, because I'm not saying anything the Bible doesn't say. There in verse 23, Paul is saying, look, this, this is what all the controversy is about. But the Bible says these things. The Bible says that Messiah will be a suffering servant. Psalm 22 Isaiah 53, Messiah will be wounded, bruised, chastised, oppressed, afflicted. The Bible says that Messiah will rise from the dead. We already looked at one place that says that. Also says it, Psalm 16.10, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, Messiah speaking, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Okay, if Jesus isn't going to remain in the abode of the dead, if God is going to bring him back from the abode of the dead, he first has to die and then rise from the dead. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, this was maybe the most offensive thing of anything Paul was teaching, the Bible says Messiah will bring light both to Jews and Gentiles. In a bunch of places, places like Isaiah 42, 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. I'm going to keep my promises to Israel, but I'm also going to go after the Gentiles. And what Paul is summarizing in verse 23 is, hey, 
This is what has everybody mad at me, but it's black letter scripture, every part of it. I'm not saying anything the Bible doesn't say. Now, as he thus made his defense, verse 24, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're nuts. Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Paul probably thought, okay, I've got to be on the right track because they're saying the same things to me they said about Jesus. This is also after Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians where he said the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, who's my primary audience, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Festus, you're the new guy in town, so you're playing catch-up, but Agrippa's been here for a while. He knows what the Bible says. He knows what the Pharisees believe. He knows what happened to Jesus, and he knows what a bunch of us are saying happened next. He knows that Jesus was, a, was executed, but he knows full well that there are more than a few of us who are really, really sure he, he rose from the dead. So Paul is challenging him. What do you do with that, king? I mean, it adds up if you, if, if you, if you look with open eyes if you look at it objectively, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe the prophets. And if you say that you believe the prophets, if you, if you believe what the Bible says, you've got no basis for disbelieving Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, if you take the prophets seriously, you have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The Bible proves that Jesus is the Messiah, but Agrippa won't go there. He's got, he's got Roman VIPs on one side. He's got Jewish leaders on the other. He's got too much to lose. So Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. That's a bad translation. Better translation, do you really think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? That word almost is, is, is mistranslated. It, it refers to the time of Paul's testimony and, and not how close Agrippa gets to believing it. The Greek makes it clear that he's being sarcastic. But Paul ignores the sarcasm. He just responds with sincerity. He says, yes! <laughs> Yeah, I am hoping that you'll become a Christian. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, you know, except for the chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they'd gone aside, they talked amongst themselves, saying, this man has done nothing deserving of death or chains. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. But of course he had. Paul, Paul did. So next week, verse 20, uh, chapter 27, we'll see Paul on his way to Rome to make his defense before Caesar, before Nero. The thing I can't help but notice, though, with apologies to my not-from-Olathe friend, Fred, we just saw Paul, Paul who's called by Jesus, commended by Jesus, sent by Jesus, and used by Jesus for like 25 years at this point, talking quite a bit about himself sharing in some detail his testimony, the story of Jesus moving in his life. Now, let's be fair. Fred's not pointing at nothing. Paul didn't only talk about himself, and he didn't go on and on talking about himself. He also talked about God. He was talking about himself for the purpose of talking about Jesus. And, and he did it well. He did it wisely. He, I'm sure he did it prayerfully. So what is there for us to learn? What can we glean how do we do what Paul did wisely and well when we have the opportunity? Probably a lot of things we can learn from Paul's example. I want to call out six. 
Six things that I think that Lord would have us take away from Paul's testimony this morning. The first is straightforward. The first is just he was willing to give it. Paul was willing to believe there was someone in front of him who needed to hear it. We called out verse 1. He wasn't under any obligation to say anything. He could have kept his mouth shut. But that's legally. Morally, Paul said, okay, if I have an opportunity, that is an obligation. God told him he was going to be a witness. He's not going to pass it up. Now, we don't always have the same specific calling that Paul did here. Paul had been told kings, there's a king. We don't often, I don't often have that. Sometimes God says, hey, Patrick, go talk to that person. Sometimes. For me, pretty rarely. More often, for all of us, I think it's obedience to general calling. Be witnesses. That's Jesus' instruction to all of us. As you're going, when you're, as you're out living your life, doing your thing, b- make disciples. Trusting that the same God who just happened to make sure Paul knew about the assassination plot a couple chapters earlier will just happen to put people in our path who need to hear our story. Our story, our specific story. Pastor friend grew up in the church, and, and, and he talks about growing up hearing testimonies of guys who were into all kinds of gnarly stuff. You know, addicts and dealers and adulterers and murderers and powerful testimonies of, of, of hardened criminals being, being saved by the tender love of Jesus. The thing is that they were, they were powerful and they, he couldn't relate to them at all because that wasn't him. He couldn't relate to the, to the guys sharing the testimony, therefore he couldn't relate to the God that they were talking about. And it wasn't until he heard a testimony from a pastor's kid who talked about growing up in the church, never misbehaving, always towing the line, always on his best behavior outwardly, never giving anybody any trouble externally, but inwardly a rebel. Inwardly, his whole adolescence going back and forth between not believing in God and being really angry at God. And he realized, that's me. I relate to that story. And that told him that he needed to be saved. He needed to to come out from from the, the apron of his parents' faith and trust Jesus for himself. He needed to hear a really vanilla testimony. Someone needed to hear Paul's specific testimony that day. Agrippa, for sure, because Jesus said so. Was Agrippa saved? I don't think so. It might have been that Agrippa needed to hear that testimony so that when he stood before God and said, God, I didn't know that Jesus was, you know, Jesus. God could say, I literally sent the leading evangelist of your day to tell you, yes, you did know. So Agrippa, yeah, but maybe more than Agrippa. There were other people listening. Maybe one of the commanders or prominent men that were there went away and said, I still don't know what Paul was doing here. I'm not clear on what he was arrested for, but I'm glad that he was here because I needed to hear what he said. I needed to hear what he said. The first thing I take away, Paul was willing to share, willing to believe someone would benefit from his story. That someone there would hear it and that God would use it. Second thing that I noticed, Paul doesn't clean up his story. He's honest about the fact he was a murderer. He killed people, and the people that he didn't kill, he threatened to kill, or he threatened to kill their loved ones if they didn't renounce Jesus. And that's important. 
Because just like the friend I was talking about a moment ago needed to know that Jesus died for more than addicts and murderers and thieves, and that you didn't need to be an addict, a murderer, or a thief to need Jesus, the murderer and the thief and the addict and the child molester and every kind of, of, of sinner also needs to know, also needs to hear that they can be forgiven. I've told this story before when I was living in New Jersey I had an opportunity to meet David Berkowitz through some prison ministry that we were doing. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer. Got saved in prison and uh, when, when we launched our radio station, um, Began a, became a huge advocate for the radio station in that prison. He would buy radios and break off the tuner and then give them away for free. Hey, free radio. Thing is, it only gets Christian teaching. And he'd give away hundreds of those. Believe it or not, even serial killers are eventually eligible for parole. Berkowitz, last I knew, had vowed not to pursue it because he believed he had more effective ministry inside the walls of prison than he would outside. Because inside he had, well, a captive audience. <laughs> but an audience of the worst of the worst that he could tell with credibility that few people had that it wasn't too late. He, Berkowitz understood there were people in prison who needed to hear his story. And like Paul, he didn't minimize it. He, yeah, I brutally killed those eight people. At the same time, though, here's number three, something Paul and Berkowitz both have in common. They didn't glorify the sinful part of the story. They didn't camp out there. They didn't dwell on it. We, we've heard people do that, right? Not enough just to acknowledge the sin. They've got to describe their sin with the more graphic detail, the better. And how much worse their sin was than anybody else's sin. You think you're a sinner, buckle up. Do you, ha you have an hour? I'm going to tell you. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't talk about how many people he killed or how he killed them or how long it took to kill them or who he made them watch. While he, he just says that it happened and it was ugly. And then he moved on. That's important because, because what's his goal in telling the story? He's trying to tee up what happened next. He's trying to tee up the transformation that, that's changed him. He's talking about who he was for the purpose of saying, that's not who I am anymore. But, but see, if he dwells too long on the gory details, that's all anybody's going to hear. That's all anybody's going to remember. Because, because our flesh likes flesh. And our sin nature really likes to hear about sin. But if we, if, we, if we get focused on the graphic detail, the things we saw, the things we did, the things that were done to us, our carnal mind gets, gets energized, gets activated, and then it doesn't hear the important part, the transforming part, the, the, the Jesus part. I learned that, I probably heard that before, but, but I heard it in a way that really stuck with me from Richie Furey, Calvary pastor who just happens to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, First time I met him, I was starstruck because I loved his music, Buffalo Springfield and, 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 and other bands growing up. But as I got to know him a little bit, okay, tell me about the battle days. You know, tell me, tell me some, 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 some good Neil Young stories. How much cocaine did you guys really do, seriously? And he says, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't talk about that. I said, but you've got to have stories. He said, yeah. Yeah, but if I talk about drugs and sex and rock and roll, people just want to hear more about drugs and sex and rock and roll. 
And then they want to hear more, and then they want to hear more, and they won't hear me when I try to talk about Jesus. So he says, I, I, don't get me started. So, so Paul doesn't glorify his, his sin. He doesn't magnify his past. The other thing Paul does, this is number four, he makes sure his story makes sense. Verse 9, 10, and 11, Paul says, hey, the people that I looked up to told me Jesus couldn't be the Messiah, so I believed he couldn't be the Messiah. My role models told me it was blasphemy to teach that Jesus was the Messiah, and I believed them. I thought that's what it was to be a good Jew. I thought that's what Pharisees did. I thought that that's what God wanted me to do. And the way that Paul's relating it, we can tell at least some people were nodding. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Agrippa, for sure, understood. Yeah, I mean, of course that's what you did. If I believe someone needs to hear my story, then, then, then I have to make sure it's a believable story, a relatable story, something that, that at least someone is going to understand, something that at least someone, maybe not everyone, but someone is going to identify with. Same conference that I was talking about, Patty Height was there. Patty Height, and she's been here, and, and we need to get her back here. It's been like six or seven years. But she was there sharing her testimony which, if, if you don't know Patty, revolves around gender confusion and same-sex attraction. Which, by definition, not everyone can relate to. Statistically, the majority have no idea what that's like. So she doesn't start there. She very intentionally begins with her childhood and describes being starved for affection because of stuff going on with her parents. Desperate for attention, falling into depression, wanting to belong, Wanting to fit in. Those are universals. Those are, are things that everybody can connect with. And then she builds from there. But she doesn't stop in the past. For Patty, for Paul, for son of Sam, the past is prelude. The important part is what happens next. The change that happens and the fact that it happens when Jesus enters a life. There's a pivot point where Jesus clearly is the hero of the story. Fifth thing we learn from Paul. Paul makes it clear Jesus is the hero of the story. First time I shared my testimony, I hadn't figured that out yet. I was asked to share my testimony at, at the college that I went to with a, with a Christian group. I was given like 10 minutes. I used the first nine and a half minutes to describe what a sinner I was the last time I was there when I was going to school. Nine and a half out of ten minutes. I did this, I did that, I outdid it. And then the last 30 seconds, and Jesus saved me and now I'm here. And I sat down. Nothing about what changed, nothing about who I was now, nothing about what was different, nothing about why I was different, nothing about how Jesus made me different. Easy to get stuck talking about the past. Easy to get stuck glorifying the past, but even if we're not glorifying it, I mean, some, some people, they, they, they start talking about their B.C. days, their before Christian, and, and it sounds like they really miss sin. <laughs> but, but that's not the only way we get stuck. Sometimes we get stuck not because we miss sin, but because we're not completely sure we're past sin. We're not sure our past is in our past. We're not sure that we're forgiven. Paul was able to say, I was a murderer, and then move on. Why? Because he was forgiven, and he knew that he was forgiven. 
and he wants to talk about being forgiven, and he can because he knows he's forgiven. I think a lot of us, probably more of us than we want to admit, trip over that. We hesitate to share our stories, or we get tangled up when we start to. Because I can't tell my story without talking about my sin. And if I talk about my sin, I've got to think about my sin. And if I think about my sin, I've got to decide what I think about my sin. Am I forgiven? Can I be forgiven? Have I been forgiven? Am I still forgiven? Was I ever forgiven? I think one reason a lot of us duck when God gives us an opportunity to share our story, I think one reason we hesitate when God opens the door for us to talk about Jesus is we're not completely sure that the forgiveness he purchased at the cross is enough for all our sin. Am I qualified to be forgiven? Am I sorry enough? Have I suffered enough? Do I feel guilty enough? And the answer to those questions is almost certainly no. (laughs) But none of those questions matter. Forgiveness doesn't depend on us, it depends on Jesus. He suffered enough. He bore our guilt enough. And he doesn't ask us to sorrow about it. Quite the opposite. He instructs us to do what? Rejoice. Don't be sad that you're forgiven. Rejoice that you're forgiven. I remember hearing a Calvary pastor share in I don't remember who it was or I tell you. It might have been Damien Kyle, but I don't know. But I I remember him sharing at a pastor's conference about how for years he felt called to to teach and to serve and to shepherd. But at the same time, he felt paralyzed and and just stuck, unable to pursue his calling because every time he would think about it, he was overwhelmed with just sadness. How can I serve Jesus? My sin sent him to the cross. How can I claim to love Jesus? My sin pounded the nails into his hands. How can I tell people about Jesus? And then one day it clicked. He says it was like, it was like the scales falling from Paul's eyes. One day he's reason, reading the word and he realized he was carrying around guilt for sending Jesus to the cross. And it struck him the guilt he felt at needing to be forgiven was part of the guilt that Jesus died for. And that no condemnation meant exactly that. See, without knowing it, he'd made himself the center of his own story. Pride does that. We want to be the hero of our story, and if we can't be the hero, we'll settle for being the villain. Either way, it doesn't matter. As long as the story revolves around us, And what the pastor got to is what Paul got to. Paul realized, verse 22, Paul realized in meeting Jesus, he had just become part of a story that was way bigger than him. It was a story that began before time. It was a story that unfolded over centuries. It was a story that wasn't nearly as much about his sin as it was about God's grace. The grace that wiped away his sin. The grace he was here to tell the world about. And when he realized that, he realized he was not only able to share his story, he needed to. Because it wasn't his story anymore. He wasn't the hero. And he wasn't the villain. He was the witness. Saying, this is what I saw Jesus do. 
up close and personal. I had a perfect view because it happened in my life. And here's the sixth thing. What Paul goes on to do, the way that he concludes the story, he makes it clear that Jesus is the hero of his story. And he invites people listening to make Jesus the hero of their story. Hey, here's what Jesus still wants to do. He wants, to, he wants you to turn from darkness to light. He wants you to throw off the power of Satan. He wants you to be forgiven of sin. He wants you to be adopted into God's family. And you can be. How? By calling on the name Jesus. By believing that Jesus, fully man and fully God, died in your place. He wants to be the hero of your story. Agrippa asks at the end of the chapter, Paul, you really expect me to become a Christian? Paul says, expect? I don't know. That's between you and God. I don't know what I expect. Am I inviting you to become a Christian? Absolutely. Verse 29, I want to invite as many people as I can to be part of the kingdom of God. That's why I told you the story. Paul was willing to believe that he could be Agrippa's Damascus Road experience if God called him to it, if God anointed him for it. God could use his interaction with Agrippa the same way that God used Jesus' interaction with Paul to open his eyes, to change his path. And Paul didn't think that was presumptuous. Who am I that God would use me? How often have we seen someone hide behind that? How often have we ourselves hidden behind that? Because it sounds really humble, right? Who am I that God would use me? Who are you to say, God, no thanks? You want to use me, but I I think I know better. Who am I that God could use me? What What are we really saying when we say that? God, I believe you saved me, but I don't want you to use me to save them. I mean, I'm ungrateful and all, but not grateful enough to be a part of it. What we're really saying is, God, saving me was easy. Using me, I don't think you're up to that challenge. Really? What's harder? Taking an enemy of God, a sinner, a wretch, like we, like we sang about, and transforming them into a saint? Delivering them from sin and, 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 and death and Satan? Or taking that transformed saint, taking that redeemed life and using it? Which is harder? God, you can, you can save your enemies, but you can't use them. See, there we go making ourselves the middle of the story again, the hero of the story or the villain. There are people out there who need to hear our story. There are people who need to hear my version, my story, your version, your story. He, he trusted us, I'm sorry, we trusted him to save us. Can't we trust him to use us? Maybe even be ready and prayerfully expecting that he will? We've got no problem telling people, here's a song I think you'll like. Here's a show that's up your alley. Here's a recipe I think you'll really enjoy. Hey, you read this book, you won't be able to put it down. Here's a vitamin supplement I think will really help you. Hey, here's a friend I think you'll hit it off with. What if we brought that same passion to a conversation that starts with, hey, I got a story that you might be interested in. It's about a person, no joke, who changed my life. And some people are going to say, not interested. 
Some people will listen and then laugh at you. But someone, we, we've got to believe. We've got to, we've got to trust someone needs to hear it. And we have to understand that's why we're here, to be those witnesses of what we have seen, what Jesus has done in us. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. When we were your enemies, when there was no good in us, when we rose up early to think of new ways to sin, you saw us, you loved us, you came after us. Lord, would you give us faith to believe that you want to use us to go after others? That our stories are in a sense not unique because Jesus is the common denominator and yet Jesus meets each of us differently, loves each of us where we're at, for who we are, and there's someone who needs to hear that version of the gospel, that testimony of your grace. Would you open our eyes to see those people? Would you open our hearts to be willing to share with those people?